Well, good morning, church. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. This will be our last week in this chapter in our Genesis series called Origins. We've spent this much time in Genesis 1 because origins matter. It matters where we came from and who we came from. There is a way of eternal life and eternal death. As I've shared this quote earlier, we must think right thoughts of God if we would worship him as he desires to be worshiped, if we would live the life he wishes us to live and enjoy the peace which he has provided for us. And our focus today will be just two verses, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. So Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Father, as we wrap up Genesis 1, as we consider how you have made each one of us, that each one of us are fearfully and wonderfully made from the moment of conception, God, we recognize just how we live in a world where human beings, the image of God is attacked on so many fronts. And God, we need to think clearly and carefully about what your word says about us as human beings, us as your image bearers. So I pray, God, that you would help me with this very difficult topic. Lord, I do feel inadequate for what is needed to be done. But God, your word gives us life and light and truth. So speak to us by your spirit today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, June 24th this year will be remembered in American history. On June 24th, the Supreme Court reversed Roe v. Wade, a Supreme Court decision in 1973 that legalized abortion in all 50 states. On June 24th, our nation took a giant step forward towards recognizing the personhood of the unborn child. Reactions were swift and immediate. Those on the pro-abortion side immediately condemned this as a giant step backwards. The loss of fundamental rights, the loss of a woman's right to choose, the loss of a woman's right to privacy and bodily autonomy, a giant step backwards sending us into the dark ages. So which is it? Did the overturning of Roe v. Wade advance the cause of justice or did it advance oppression? Once again, the word of God speaks clearly, definitive, and authoritatively. Genesis 1 is that watershed, and we have two ways to respond to what Genesis 1 says about abortion, submission to God's word or rejection of God's word, an issue literally of life and death. Today, we're going to see that we must respect all human beings as God's image bearers from the moment of conception until natural death and at every point in between. We must respect all human beings as God's image bearers from the moment of conception until natural death and at every point in between. Before we unpack that a bit, it's important to understand history, to understand how the image of God has been attacked. This nation, like every other nation, is made up of sinners. And until Christ comes, we shouldn't be be surprised 
to see any nation, any country, any people group attack the image of God, either on an individual basis or on a systemic basis. And so though it grieves us, though it breaks our hearts to see image bearers attacked, the oppression of image bearers shouldn't shock us as we consider the reality of sin in our hearts and the reality of sin in the hearts of all people. The opening sentence of the Declaration of Independence begins with, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. The idea that all people are created equal comes from the biblical worldview, Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Every human being is created in the image of God. We're created equal and have certain unalienable rights, not from the state, not from the government, but from the creator himself. But that understanding hasn't always been been consistently applied. At the founding of this nation, supporters of slavery discriminated against African Americans by denying their humanity, treating them as property, denying them equal treatment under the law. These denials were a direct assault on the image of God on our fellow human beings. This nation fought a four-year civil war ending in 1865 to eliminate the evil of slavery. But that wasn't the end. When Reconstruction in the South came to a halt in 1876, we saw much of the gains for civil rights in parts of the country reversed. We saw legalized segregation and Jim Crow laws. Under the leadership of Martin Luther King Jr., the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s would end, thankfully, legal segregation and move us closer towards justice and equal treatment for all Americans. But that still wasn't the end. Where there are sinners, there will be the sin of partiality, treating different people differently. And this isn't restricted to the white-black issue. Ethnic and racial partiality is a sad, worldwide, and historical reality since the fall, since the entrance of sin into this world. James chapter 2 verse 1 says, My brothers, show no partiality. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And the sin of partiality sadly continues today, treating different people differently. And sometimes it happens on an individual basis. Sometimes it happens through systems and structures. Either way, as Christians, we need to be committed to loving our neighbors as ourselves. We must oppose any partiality in our own hearts first, and then oppose it when we see it. So that means it's wrong to look down on. It's wrong to prejudge or discriminate against someone simply because they're different from us, whether they have a different skin color, a different gender, a different educational level, different culture, different religion. We're all created in the image of God, all descended from Adam and Eve, all equal in God's eyes. But even as we've made progress in treating those who are born, we've seen over the last several decades how this nation has taken step backwards in how we treat the unborn. What is abortion? Abortion is the deliberate termination of a pregnancy resulting in the death of the unborn child. Deliberate termination of a pregnancy. It's the taking of another human life. 
You might be wondering this morning, why talk about something that's so political? Abortion isn't primarily a political issue, but a moral and spiritual issue. We don't promote at this church political parties or candidates. The church is here to proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and call all sinners to repent and follow Jesus, teaching everyone to obey all that Jesus commanded, which thankfully also includes grace because we fall short constantly. We need to realize that laws in our country, they reflect morality. We have a law against murder because murder is wrong. So we have laws against rape, child abuse, shoplifting. Romans 13, verses 3 and 4. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he, the one in authority, does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So God has appointed leaders, rulers, to reward those who do good and punish those who do evil. We have laws. And in a representative democracy, you and I, in a sense, we're rulers. We choose our leaders. So that process means we have a stake. We have a say in whether we have more just laws or more unjust laws through our participation in our political process. So we talk about it because abortion is a moral and spiritual issue. But we also talk about it because it's not just happening outside the church, but inside. A study from about 10 years ago noted that two-thirds, two-thirds of America's abortions are obtained by those who call themselves Christians, those who self-identify as either Protestants or Catholics, two-thirds. And we also talk about it because of the sheer number of lives lost. Prior to June 24th, there were over 3,000, over 3,000 surgical abortions done in our country alone. This doesn't even account abortions done uh, by abortion pills. And just to give you some perspective, this is more than the lives lost in the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks. 3,000 every single day. Since Roe v. Wade, over 60 million 60 million, it's hard for us to comprehend a number like that. 60 million people have been killed by abortion in this country. And that's one out of every five people living in the United States. So it's an urgent issue. It's an important issue. And I'm going to talk about four reasons why we as Christians must oppose abortion, this great evil in our society. Abortion is anti-God. Abortion is anti-justice. Abortion is anti-women. And fourth, abortion is anti-science. It's anti, it's against. It's against God, against justice, against women, and against science. So number one, abortion is anti-God. We're going to spend most of our time here looking at God's word, looking at the theology behind our creation as God's image bearers. And every human being is created in God's image from the moment of conception, Even within the mother's womb, each human being is handcrafted, formed, made by God himself. Psalm 139, verses 13 through 15. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. 
My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. King David, the author of this psalm, knew that even when he was in his mother's womb, he was made in the image of God, fearfully and wonderfully made. And that's true for each one of us here, every single human being. What about the prophet Isaiah? But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord, who made you, who formed you from the womb. Formed you from the womb, Isaiah 44, verses 1 and 2. Or how about the righteous sufferer, Job? Job connects our common status as image bearers with the requirement that we treat one another justly. So just one more for the sake of time from the Old Testament. If I have rejected the cause of my manservant or maidservant, meaning treated my servants unjustly or oppressed them, when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? Did not he who made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? Job 31, verses 13 through 15. And this truth that each one of us are create, we're created in the image of God from the moment of conception is reaffirmed in the New Testament. The Greek word brephos is the word for child, either born or unborn. The Bible draws no distinction. So Luke 1.41 says, And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby, the brephos in the Greek, leapt, leaped in the womb. This is referring to John the Baptist in his mother Elizabeth's womb. Here's the greeting of Mary, the mother of our Lord, and leaped in the womb. The word for baby, brephos, means an unborn child in the womb, a human being, a full member of the human race. One chapter later, this word is used for a child who has already been born outside the womb. Luke chapter 2, verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby, a brephos, wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And we're familiar with Luke 2. This is the birth of Jesus at the incarnation. The word baby here, referring to baby Jesus, is the same word, brephos. So in Luke 1, brephos refers to the baby inside the womb, that's John the Baptist. And in Luke 2, brephos refers to the baby outside the womb, that's baby Jesus. So the New Testament clearly affirms the personhood and humanity of the unborn child, the unborn baby. There's no distinction in the Bible between a child that's been born or a child that's unborn. No distinction between the born child and the unborn child. So if God formed each one of us in the womb, every single human being, if we're all his image bearers from the moment of conception, we can see why God takes the killing of children so seriously. So if God did that, then we we know that an attack on the image bearer is an attack on the creator. An attack on the image bearer, whether the image bearer has been born or is unborn, is an attack on the creator. So in Genesis 9, God condemns murder as a capital crime. The Ten Commandments, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, reiterate this by saying, you shall not murder. That's why the Bible clearly condemns the killing of children. Ezekiel chapter 23, verses 38 and 39. Moreover, this they have done to me. This is God speaking. They have defiled my sanctuary, 
on the same day and profane my Sabbaths. For when they had slaughtered their children in sacrifice to their idols, on the same day they came into my sanctuary to profane it. Old Testament Israel, they sacrificed their children to their idols in the hope that it would bring their blessing and prosperity. And we might think that's rather remote. That happened back then. That doesn't happen now. But that actually happens today. In our country and around the world, most abortions happen because people sacrifice their children on the idols of sex, the idols of money and prestige. Sex without any responsibility. Money, can't afford this child. And prestige, this child gets in the way of my education, my career goals, what I want to do with my life. Theologian Wayne Grudem observes that even accidentally causing the death of an unborn child carried the death penalty. Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 through 25. Exodus 21. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined. But, but if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life. Did you catch that? If there is no harm to the unborn child, there's a fine. But if there is harm, you shall pay life for life. So in Old Testament Israel, it seems like the one causing the death of the unborn child has to pay life for life. Earlier, I referred to Genesis chapter 9, but let me read it here. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. If death is the penalty for the unintentional killing of of an unborn child, I shudder. I can't even begin to imagine what God thinks of the willful killing of an unborn child. On January 6, 2021, peaceful protests over the recent election in 2020 turned violent. We saw Americans invading the Capitol building, breaking, destroying, defacing government property. It was an attack on our government, on the institutions we respect. It was tragic and it was wrong. Why was it so disturbing? Well, it was disturbing because what should have been respected was disrespected. What should have been honored was trashed. And that's what happens in abortion. When an abortion happens, an image bearer who should have been respected is disrespected. An image bearer who should have been honored is trashed. Carl Truman writes, Abortion, too, is a death work. It's a death work. Not simply because it works the death of the unborn child, but because it profanes human life made in the image of God. That which was once thought to be a person is made into something akin to a piece of garbage or excrement. It is therefore anti-religious because it takes that which is most sacred in the social order, life itself, and flushes it down the toilet without a second thought. Biblical and historical Christianity has always, always opposed abortion as the destruction of an image bearer, as a deadly assault against the creator of that image. The Didache, a second century catechism for young converts, states, do not murder a child by abortion or kill a newborn infant. This was written around 50 to 70 A.D. Or how about the early church father Tertullian? 
It does not matter whether you take away a life that is born or destroy one that is coming to the birth. In both instances, the destruction is murder. It was written around 200 AD. And the reformer John Calvin said, the fetus, though enclosed in the womb of its mother, is already a human being. And it is a monstrous crime to rob it of life. If it seems more horrible to kill a man in his own house than in a field, because a man's house is his place of most secure refuge, it ought surely to be deemed more atrocious to destroy a fetus in the womb before it has come to light. If it is more evil to kill a man in his own home because that is his secure place of refuge, how evil it is to kill a baby in the womb. In contrast, however, God's word holds out a very different vision for pregnancy and children. Not a disease. It's not a burden. It's not a problem to get rid of. Not an obstacle to my personal goals, but a blessing. Let's look again at verses 27 and 28 of Genesis chapter 1. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let's take a moment to notice the structure of 27 and 28. We see the creation of man in God's image in verse 27. And then in verse 28, we see that God blessed them. God blessed them. And the blessings includes the command to be fruitful to multiply, to fill the earth, to have children, to value children, to want children, to want the earth to be filled with other image bearers. To fill the earth with more image bearers, to have children, is a blessing, not a curse. The gift of children is seen all throughout the scriptures. Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them, Psalm 127. And this just makes sense. You don't need the Bible to tell you that if a civilization just stops having babies, it'll just die out. Everybody will just grow old and die out. So abortion is anti-God. Number one, abortion is anti-God. Number two, abortion is anti-justice. Anti-justice. Abortion is the denial of justice. Abortion is a genocide that the mainstream media keeps denying. They are genocide deniers, denying the genocide of over 60 million babies. 60 million. Legally sanctioned killing, approved by the state, a systemic oppression against the unborn. That means in this country, if you're a baby outside the womb, the law protects you. Anyone caught killing a child born, a born child, will be charged with murder. But if you're a baby inside the womb, you have no protections. No protections, no rights, no standing. Thanks be to God that this is beginning to change in this country. Here's an easy way to defend the sanctity of unborn human life. It's called the SLED test, developed by pro-life author Scott Klusendorf. S, size. L, level of development. E, environment. D, degree of dependency. S-L-E-D. The sled test just shows how unjust 
the logic of abortion is. S, size. Are large people more human than small people? Do men who are typically larger than women deserve more rights? Rights don't depend on size. That's S, size. L, level of development. Embryos and fetuses are less developed. But why should this determine who has a right to life? What if I told my four-year-old daughter, Alexa, you're less of a human being. You're not fully a human being because you're less developed than a 14-year-old. Or what if you lost an arm or you lost your memory in a car accident? Did that, does that make you less of a human being? Of course not. Rights don't depend on level of development. That's L. E for environment. E for environment. Why should your environment determine whether you have a right to life? Do you have more rights when you cross the street or when you roll, out, roll over in bed? So how does a journey of eight inches, eight inches down the birth canal suddenly change the unborn to a person with rights? Rights don't depend on the environment. And finally, D, degree of dependency. How does degree of dependency determine whether you or I have a right to life? Diabetics have a dependency on insulin. Those who have heart issues have a dependency on a pacemaker. And a baby has a dependency on her mother, even after the baby is born. Rights don't depend on a degree of dependency. In a nutshell, that's the SLED test, S-L-E-D, and it clearly shows how abortion is anti-justice. As one pro-lifer points out, just as sexism and racism are wrong because they pick out a surface difference, gender or skin color, birthism is wrong. We're all equals and all have the same human nature. To quote another writer, every abortion is an abuse of power. For all of us who are no longer in the womb, it can be so hard for us to see our privilege. We have post-birth privileges that pre-born people do not enjoy in the womb. Pre-born people feel pain, but they're too weak to fight back. They are victimized, but have no voice. Abortion is anti-justice because it oppresses the weak. But the biblical worldview, in contrast, calls us to care for, to protect, to defend the weak, whether they're born or unborn. The weaker the potential victim is, the greater responsibility for protection. Though we as Christians are never as consistent as we ought to be, the Lord still calls us to this standard and thankfully supplies all the grace that we need. Romans chapter 15. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. A biblical vision of justice calls us to serve as Christ himself served. In the gospel, Jesus laid down his life that we might have life. He laid down his life that he might save our life. As John Piper writes, Christ died that we might live. And this is the opposite of abortion. Abortion kills that someone might live differently. Christ died that we might live. This is the opposite of abortion. Abortion kills that someone might live differently. In the gospel, we remember that at one time we were lost. We were helpless. We were dead in our sins. Christ died that we might live. Christ never sacrificed others for his sake. He sacrificed himself for our sake. 
to save us from the judgment of God that our sins deserved. So the Bible calls us to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. Proverbs 31, 8 and 9. So abortion is anti-God. Abortion is anti-justice. And third, abortion is anti-women. Abortion is anti-women. Pro-abortion activists claim that they're defending women's rights and health. We can admire and understand their motivation, but have to disagree with the results. It's demeaning to tell a woman that that the only way they can thrive is to have access to terminating their pregnancy. Can you imagine telling a mother who is having a hard time with her two-year-old, oh, you don't have to put up with the pain and difficulty, those trials of raising that two-year-old. Why don't you just terminate that two-year-old? Then you don't have to worry about that. Can you imagine anyone telling a mother to terminate their two-year-old? It would be so insulting to assume that a mother's only solution is to terminate the child, to eliminate the child. But that's what the pro-abortion position says. Abortion is also anti-women because it allows men to walk away. Abortion, Abortion allows and even encourages men to sexually exploit women without the fear of having to take responsibility for any children conceived. If the woman does get pregnant, the, wom- the, man, the man can hand over $300 and buy a dead child. Randy Alcorn. Rather than holding men accountable, abortion lets them off the hook. A better path to human flourishing is to hold men accountable by making sure men feel the social, the legal, and moral costs of walking away. It always takes two parents to make a child. So why should men be rewarded and women burdened? Let's advocate for just laws that hold men responsible for their offspring. And abortion is anti-women because it's the primary tool used in sex selection. Some cultures around the world, they prize males over females. Males carry the family name and are valued as breadwinners for the family. In many cultures, a son is an asset since he can earn and support the family, but a daughter is viewed as a liability since she'll be married off to another family. Abortion is that primary way of eliminating unwanted females. For instance, the pressure on women in India to provide male offspring results in something like 50,000 girls aborted each month, over a million each year. It's similar in China. Millions of girls aborted annually and a huge imbalance in in the population as a result. Two-thirds of children born in China are now males. And sadly, in many cases, both around the world and here in the U.S., violence and coercion force young women, young moms to abort the unwanted females. They're forced against their wishes. So the availability of abortion actually oppresses women. As Randy Alcorn writes, there can be no equal rights for all women until there are equal rights for unborn women. Finally, abortion is anti-woman because it endangers a woman's health and life. The single most avoidable risk factor for breast cancer is induced abortion. You can draw a straight line from abortion to breast cancer risk. And the mortality rate from legal abortion is 2.95 times higher than that of pregnancies carried to term. 
So a woman who chooses to abort rather than to give birth is three times more likely to die from that legal abortion than die from giving birth. I share these two simple statistics because you'll never hear that in the pro-abortion media. And as Christians, we need to know the facts so we can give an answer to those who ask us why we're pro-life. We're pro-life because we're pro-women. We're pro-children. At this point, I want to answer some hard questions. These are legitimate and difficult questions. Number one, what if the woman's life is in danger? It's a question that many people are asking. An ectopic pregnancy happens when a fertilized egg implants in a mother's fallopian tube. If the baby is left there, at some point the baby gets too large and the tube bursts, resulting in the death of both the mother and the baby. And sadly, medical technology hasn't found a way to save the baby yet. In this situation, the baby dies no matter what. So what should be done? Well, thankfully, the doctors can at least save the life of the mother. And this is where intent matters. The intent of the doctors in this situation is to save the life of the mother, not kill the unborn child. The child is wanted. The child wants, they want the child to live, but unfortunately, the child can't. In that situation, saving the life of the mother is not abortion, not the deliberate killing of the unborn child. Number two, what if the pregnancy is the result of rape? We have to grieve with the rape victim and seek justice for any violence. But a second act of violence against the child is never the answer. The child is as much a victim as the mother. How does giving a death sentence to the child for the crime of the father make any sense? If a two-year-old reminded the mother of a horrible event in her life, the solution would never be to kill the two-year-old child. As Christians, we're never called to repay evil for evil, but to give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, Romans 12, 17. And number three, what about the pill? The birth control pill is taken by millions worldwide. However, one of the ways many of these pills work is not widely known. If you do take the pill, you need to be an informed consumer. Some pills work by preventing conception. There's no problem there. Preventing a pregnancy is different from ending one. But other pills include a way to kill the fertilized egg by stopping it from implanting. These pills work by thinning and shriveling the lining of the uterus so that a newly fertilized egg can't implant, which is abortive. Some pills do end up being abortive, even though doctors don't know exactly how often that happens. So if you do take the pill, you must be careful. Life is too important not to do your homework. And most women, unfortunately, are unaware that there is the possibility that some pills are abortive. So if your birth control pill has a non-zero probability of causing an abortion, you have a moral obligation not to use it. Think of it this way. If you're driving at night and you see a dark figure in the road, and it may be a child, it may be a shadow, you don't know, how certain do you have to be not to drive into it? If there's a non-zero chance it could be a child, we have a moral obligation not to drive into it. So if the pill has a non-zero probability of causing an abortion, you have a moral obligation not to use it. So abortion is anti-God. It's anti-justice, anti-women. And finally, number four, abortion is anti-science. It's anti-science. 
For over a hundred years, science has concluded that human life begins at conception. At the moment sperm joins the egg, God creates a new human being, a one-of-a-kind individual. The embryo certainly develops. No one is saying that there aren't different degrees of development. But the embryo doesn't change into something it wasn't before. What began at conception is and always will be a human being. If you had super advanced ultrasound technology showing you that very moment of fertilization, the moment that sperm, the sperm unites with the egg, the moment that creates a new human being created in God's image, in that moment, before any cell division takes place, when you are literally only one cell, if you could see that one cell, that one cell would be you. That one cell would be you as much as a two-year-old version of you is you, or as much as a 20-year-old version of you is you. That embryo is a human being, a far less developed human being, but a full member of the human race. As Scott Klusendorf states, human parents produce human offspring. Human parents produce human offspring. So if you deny that the baby in the womb is a human being, then you have to explain, what is it? What is that in the mother's womb? What is that human embryo? Well, it's not a rock. It's not a bird. It's not an alligator. It's not a reptile. It's not a subhuman organism that at some point becomes human. It's a human. It's a human being. And you don't need to do rocket science. Contrary to the confusion you hear in the mainstream media, there is no confusion in the scientific community. When pro-abortionists deny that the fetus is human, they are the ones against science. But again, you don't need science to tell you that. Even a five-year-old can tell you that human parents conceive a human baby and give birth to a human child, and they're not giving birth to a bird or reptile or some other organism. There's a person in there. Randy Alcorn puts it this way. People argue with a straight face that the woman's body is the only body involved in a pregnancy. But if that is true, then consider the body parts this woman must have. Two noses, four legs, two different sets of fingerprints, two brains, and half the time she must also have male genitals. If it is impossible for a woman to have male genitals, then the boy she is carrying cannot be part of her body. In other words, Dr. Seuss beautifully and simply affirms what God's word, what creation, and what science all agree with, even if pro-abortionists deny all three. A person's a person, no matter how small. Love the simplicity of that. A person's a person, no matter how small. On March 6, 1857, the Supreme Court in Dred Scott versus Stanford ruled that no act of Congress or territorial legislature could make laws banning slavery. The fundamental argument was that slaves are not free and equal persons. The argument today is similar. The unborn are at the sovereign disposal of their mothers and do not have personal standing in their own right. And today, 130 years later, we look back with amazing consensus and marvel at the blindness of our forefathers, John Piper. As we see the arguments used to justify abortion, we see the urgency of this issue. 
Abortion advocates discriminate against the unborn by denying their humanity, treating them as disposable property, denying them equal treatment under the law. And these denials, the denial of humanity and equal treatment, are a direct assault on the image of God in our fellow human beings. If we were made to watch a doctor pull off the little baby's legs and arms one by one and place them on a table, if all Americans were made to see what it really is, what abortion really is, the pro-life goal of abortion being unthinkable, not just illegal, would be much nearer. Maybe you're here this morning, this is all new to you. Maybe this is the first time you've heard a defense for the pro-life position. Or maybe you've had an abortion in your past, or maybe you're pro-choice. Well, we want to thank you for being here. We want you to know that though abortion is a great sin in God's eyes, the grace of God is even greater. Where sin abounded, grace abounded even more. The Son of God came to the earth in the person of Jesus Christ to live a perfect life we could never live, and then to die on the cross the death that we deserved. And that grace given to us in Jesus Christ at the cross is freely available to anyone who would repent of their sins, to turn from their sins, and trust in Christ alone. Yes, abortion is anti-God, anti-justice, anti-women, and anti-science, and it's also anti-gospel. The gospel is a gospel of life, not death. Jesus came to rescue us out of sin, out of curse, out of death. And as we've looked at earlier, Christ dies that we might live. In abortion, the baby dies and is never given a choice. But thankfully, no sin is beyond the reach of Christ. So if you haven't yet done so, come to Christ today. Turn from your sin and be cleansed of your sins today. Trust in Jesus Christ alone so that you will know with certainty if you were to die tonight, your sins would be wiped away and you would enjoy eternal life with God in heaven forever. Don't delay. No one is guaranteed another day on planet Earth. Turn to Christ. Trust in Christ today. Overturning Roe v. Wade isn't the end. More battles need to be fought. By the grace of God, let us continue to advocate, to speak up and fight for the rights of the least of these, the weakest, the most vulnerable, the most helpless image bearers. Let's pray. Father, we come and we are grieved whenever any image bearer is attacked, whenever any unborn child has his or her life snuffed out, when there is any act of justice, injustice or oppression. So we pray, God, that you would awaken consciences in this country, awaken minds and hearts to the reality of the unborn, to the plight of the unborn. Lord, strengthen and increase our convictions. Lord, stir in our hearts the call to neighbor love, to love our unborn neighbor as we would love ourselves. And show us, God, how we are to live a life worthy of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, In closing here, I just want to suggest a few things we can do with a message like this. I realize this is a 
a, a weighty message, a serious message, uh, not an easy message to listen to, and yet our God has infinite supplies of grace. And so first, we need to pray. Pray that God would fight for and secure justice for the unborn. Pray that we as a church would be a voice for a voiceless, to defend any and all who are oppressed, both the unborn and the born. Pray that God would turn the hearts of our leaders, right? The Bible says God turns the hearts of our leaders like a watercourse, the hearts of kings like a watercourse, wherever he pleases. So pray that God would turn the hearts of our leaders, especially of those who are doing everything they can to support and promote abortion, that God would turn their hearts towards justice. I think of the parable of the persistent widow in Luke 18, the wicked judge who cares nothing about God or man, but eventually gives justice to a widow who keeps asking for justice. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So first, we need to pray. Second, we need to keep learning and growing. We have a book called Why Pro-Life by Randy Alcorn that was a big help to me in preparing this sermon. I used a number of his quotes today. We have extra copies in the back for free. We want to encourage you to take it and read it and develop stronger biblical convictions about the unborn. Third, consider getting involved with a local pregnancy center. We have a partnership with a Christian pro-life pregnancy center in Drexel Hill called Amnion. And there are always opportunities to pray, to serve, and to give. Church, go with God's blessing this week. May the God of all life, who breathed life into each one of us and created us in his image from the moment of conception, may Jesus Christ, who came that we might have life and have it abundantly, may the Holy Spirit, the spirit of resurrection life, bless you and keep you this week as you carry the least of these on your hearts. Amen.